Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 42. I hope everyone is fine and well on this Wednesday night. We have, to make up for last week's little show, we have a fantastic, fun-packed show. <laughs> Sound like Timmy Mallet. New poet on our books today, Michael Trim. Check out his work. Flash Fiction comes from none other than Frederick Brown. We have a new section, which will be hopefully every month now. A book review by Sean Keogh. Sean, I really appreciate this. Thank you very much, sir. We jump into our fact file today, and it is none other than fantastic Mr. Terry Edge. Terry's doing all about plot, and main fiction comes today from Benjamin Rosenbaum. This is what Cory Doctorow has to say about this certain story. Ben Rosenbaum wrote a story called The Anne King, a Californian fairy tale, for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction back in 2001 that just floored me. It's a delicious magic realist story about hackers and ants. It impressed me so much that I tracked down Ben and we became friends and we're now working on a story together. Can't get better than that. And we have that story on the Starship Sofa Oral Delights. So, like I say, a fun-filled show. So before we tackle any of those subjects, let me just put out a plea again. Don't forget, flash fiction. Always looking for flash fiction. Make it... (laughs) Very hitty missy, yeah. Make it 1,600 words. It can be science fiction, fantasy, horror. Blur the edges. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, specific like that. Get it to me at starshipsofa at gmail.com. And, or if you have a good idea that you want to do for a little article, even if it's just a one-off, five-minute article... Drop us an email, let us know what you think or what your ideas are, and we'll take it from there. Again, starshipsover at gmail.com. So I think we'll kick off with some poetry, as usual. Michael Trim's short stories and poems have appeared in numerous venues over the last few years. Recent or forthcoming works may be found in Aeon, Postscripts, Weird Tales, Black Gate, and Realms of Fantasy, among others. He is a multiple Risling Award nominee, always the bridesmaid, alas. One day, Michael. <laughs> so. The Fairy Tale Graveyard by Michael Trim. White castles crumble, their grounds choked with thorns, while once sleeping princesses rot on their beers. Unicorns stumble and shatter their horns on grey mossy dragon bones, stone hard for years. Griffins and manicores, bloodied and spent, leave feather and kitton to litter the field. Withered old women lie broken and bent, their magics long silent, 
their potions congealed. Each night a wake is performed for the dead. Now, crawling in darkness, the mourners appear. Pale, voiceless bluebirds with deeply bowed heads and gingerbread men crying cinnamon tears. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Michael Trim. Michael, thank you very much for that. Look forward to some more of Michael Trim's work. And Diane, thank you. Please pop over to Diane's blog. Check out her CD, Silence. Digital download, don't you know? So next we come on to the flash fiction, and it is none other than Frederick Brown. And I got this story, it was just a link I found on SF Signal, and it was up there free on Gutenberg's site. So I thought, I wonder if I'll just go over there, get it sorted, you know, and get this, get that done, and get it narrated, and here it is. Just a tiny bio on Frederick Brown, because I don't want to use up all my marbles, you understand? <laughs> Frederick Brown, born... 1906 and died in 1972, American science fiction and mystery writer. He was one of the boldest early writers in genre fiction in his use of narrative experimentation. While he never in the front ranks of popularity in his lifetime, Brown has developed a considerable cult following in almost half a century since he last wrote. His works are often reprinted and he is a worldwide fan base, most notably in the USA, Europe, especially in France. So, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents Earthmen Bearing Gifts by Frederick Brown Dar Ree sat alone in his room, meditating. From outside the door he caught a thought wave, equivalent to a knock, and, glancing at the door, he willed it to slide open. It opened. Enter, my friend, he said. He could have projected the idea telepathically, but with only two persons present, speech was more polite. Ijon Ki entered. You're up late tonight, my leader, he said. Yes, Ki. Within an hour, the Earth rocket is due to land, and I wish to see it. Yes, I know, it will land a thousand miles away, if their calculations are correct, beyond the horizon. But if it lands even twice that far, the flash of the atomic explosion should be visible. And I have waited long for first contact. For even though no Earthman will be on that rocket, it will still be first contact for them. Of course, our telepath teams have been reading their thoughts for many centuries. But this will be the first physical contact between Mars and Earth. He made himself comfortable on one of the low chairs. True he said. I have not followed recent reports too closely, though. Why are they using an atomic warhead? I know they suppose our planet is uninhabited, but still, they will watch the flash through their lunar telescopes and get a, what do they call it, a spectroscopic analysis. That will tell them more than they know now, or think they know, much of it is erroneous, about the atmosphere of our planet and the composition of its surface. It is, call it a sighting shot, Key. They'll be here in person within a few oppositions, and then... Mars was holding out, waiting for Earth to come. What was left of Mars, that is. This one small city of about 900 beings... The civilization of Mars was older than that of Earth, but it was a dying one. 
This was what remained of it. One city, nine hundred people. They were waiting for Earth to make contact, for a selfish reason and for an unselfish one. Martian civilization had developed in quite a different direction from that of Earth. It had developed no important knowledge of the physical sciences, no technology, but it had developed social sciences to the point where there had not been a single crime, let alone a war, on Mars for 50,000 years, and it had developed fully the parapsychological sciences of the mind, which Earth was just beginning to discover. Mars could teach Earth much, how to avoid crime and war to begin with. Beyond these simple things lay telepathy, telekinesis, empathy. And Earth would, Mars hoped, teach them something even more valuable to Mars. How, by science and technology, what it was too late for Mars to develop now, even if they had the type of minds which would enable them to develop these things, to restore and rehabilitate a dying planet, so that an otherwise dying race might live and multiply again. Each planet would gain greatly, and neither would lose. And tonight was the night when Earth would make its first sighting shot. Its next shot, a rocket containing Earthmen, or at least an Earthman, would be at the next opposition, two Earth years or roughly four Martian years hence. The Martians knew this because their teams of telepaths were able to catch at least some of the thoughts of Earthmen, enough to know their plans. Unfortunately, at that distance, the connection was one way. Mars could not ask Earth to hurry its program, or tell Earth scientists the facts about Mars' composition and atmosphere which would have made this preliminary shot unnecessary. Tonight, Re, the leader, as nearly as the Martian word can be translated, and Key, his administrative assistant and closest friend, sat and meditated together until the time was near. They drank a toast to the future in a beverage based on methanol, which had the same effect on Martians as alcohol on Earthmen, and climbed to the roof of the building in which they had been sitting. They watched toward the north, where the rocket should land. The stars shone brilliantly and unwinkingly through the atmosphere. In observatory number one on Earth's moon, Raj Everett, his eye at the eyepiece of the spotter scope, said triumphantly, There she blew, Willie! And now, as soon as the films are developed, we'll know the score on that old planet Mars! He straightened up. There'd be no more to see now, and he and Willie Sanger shook hands solemnly. It was an historical occasion. I hope it didn't kill anybody, any uh, Martians, that is, Raj. Did it hit dead center in Sirtis Major? Near as matters, I'd say it was maybe a, a thousand miles off to the south, and that's damn close on a fifty-million-mile shot, Willie. Willie... Do you really think there are any Martians? Willie thought a second and then said, No. He was right. 
And there you go, Frederick Brown. Now, I can't say copyright is Frederick Brown because I don't think it is no more. It's open to anybody. <laughs> Narration today comes from Dale Manley. You can check out Dale Manley or drop him an email at dalemanleyvoice at gmail.com. Caffeine-fueled deadline junkie, he likes to call himself. Thank you, Dale. It is really appreciated. So, we come on to a new little feature of the show, hopefully once a month, a book review by our good friend, Mr. Sean Keogh. And if you can remember, Sean sent, he sent in a couple of voicemails, and he sent one in when Arthur C. Clarke died, and it was just a, a really moving piece, and, and I think Sean sent it in because I didn't do anything with when the great man himself died, and I think he says, Johnny, man, for God's sake, say something about the man, I'll do it myself. So, yes, thank you, Sean. And this is, you know, like I said before, this is the prime example. If you have an idea and you want to get on the Starship Sofa, drop me an email, starshipsofa at gmail.com. So I hope you enjoy this. Look out for more of Sean's work coming soon. Hello, and welcome to the Beardy Book Review. Sean Beardy Keo reporting. This is the first in what I hope will be an occasional series on Starship Sofa containing reviews of some recent science fiction works as well as my comments on old favourites. I read quite a few books every month, some new and some old, that I reread for pleasure, and I'd like to let you know what I think. Hopefully some of you might be inspired to go out and find these books and try them. Some may even be available as audiobooks, in which case you don't even have to turn the pages. In both cases, new books and old ones, I'll try and avoid giving away too much of the storyline, while at the same time letting you know my opinion of the ideas, writing style and enjoyability. So, here we go with the first review. The book is The Electric Church by Jeff Summers, spelt S-O-M-E-R-S. First published in 2007. I bought it a couple of months ago and finally got around to reading it a few weeks back. This is in some ways a post-apocalyptic story, or at least one based in a dystopian future Earth. Sound familiar? Imagine the world of Blade Runner. All dark, dirty, always raining, crowded and noisy. Now make it 247% nastier, with the very rich and powerful able to do whatever they want, and ordinary people all terribly poor, living on shattered and burned out streets, and all of them treated essentially as criminals by the people in the middle. The ordinary police, known as crushers, who aren't above taking a bit of protection money here and there, and the system police, a nasty bunch, not exactly friendly local bobby types. The premise here seems to be that the Earth hasn't suffered some nuclear doom or an environmental catastrophe. Instead, the catastrophe, if there has been one, has been mostly one of economics. The mechanism of this isn't spelled out too clearly in the book, but the effects, especially to the poor people in the street, are pretty obvious. The final elements are a hero, or rather anti-hero, called Avery Case, who is a criminal, a contract killer actually, who ends up fighting on behalf of the good guys? Well, things aren't that simple in the world that Jeff Summers has created. Let's just say that he's fighting against some bad guys that seem to be really bad. And they are the Electric Church. This is an organization that seems to be composed of cyborgs, former human beings that have been converted into mechanical and electronic monsters, who stand around on soapboxes preaching to the masses about how the universe is so complex that no mortal humans will ever live long enough to understand it, and how being converted is the answer, the key to immortality. 
and in their spare time they kidnap and murder people, delivering the bodies to the electric church headquarters where they are turned into humanoid killing machines themselves. Imagine the Cybermen from the new Doctor Who series, but with an evangelical bent, concealing their real intent, which is... difficult to say. Jeff Summers has started what looks like shaping up into a series here. We are presented with a huge mess of information, many characters, most of whom I didn't really care about too much, although by the end the anti-hero starts to get under your skin. There are various organisations involved, the street criminal underground with various semi-legendary characters who may or may not be coming back to join in the fight, the normal police who do all the security grunt work, the system police who seem to be a thoroughly corrupt and very nasty special forces mob, various political leaders with different backgrounds, histories and intentions, the electric church itself, and a load of unresolved questions over what the motivation of various people and organisations is. And to be honest, for some of the characters that seem to be at the top of the heap in their respective organisations, it seems like their real motivations are not maybe what they claim. Of course not. It's only in James Bond films that the supervillain reveals all of his plans to his enemy. A sequel called The Digital Plague has been announced where hopefully some of these issues will be explained and resolved, and the story may possibly continue after that in further volumes. I felt that the writing was gritty, realistic... Not too overblown, without overuse of many sci-fi or thriller clichés. I actually felt comfortable in this world that Summers has conjured up, and perhaps because I've read so many cyberpunk stories and other dystopian fiction over the years, but my feeling is that this book is too short. It finishes too abruptly, with too many questions unanswered. Yes, you can wait for the sequel, but I felt a bit let down. Although Summers spices things up in the last chapter by setting up for the sequel, I won't explain except to say Case won't be fighting alone. So, a good story? Yes, I thought so, especially for a first book. Niggles about book length and unresolved questions aside, I enjoyed it. There was some good future technology on display, not all of it explained. Just referred to as if it was everyday stuff for the story protagonists. There is action, some well-described fight scenes, some moves that might be familiar to those players of computer games that require stealth as well as speed and firepower. A good, although not entirely original, first major enemy in the monks of the Electric Church, and the promise of more good things to come. I couldn't say that I was unable to put the book down, as that would be an exaggeration, but I did finish it in two evenings, so it obviously got me fairly well hooked. I got the book from Amazon, and if you like your books in print rather than audio, you'll probably find that when the sequel, Digital Plague, is announced in paperback, Amazon will start doing a special offer if you buy both. They usually do that kind of thing. Which I think you'd need to do in order to avoid the gap between finishing the first and having to wait a while before you can get your questions answered. Assuming that they are answered in the sequel, of course. So, a beardy recommendation? Yes. It isn't totally stunning, but I'd give it a solid 7 out of 10 on the Beardy Review scale for the characters, the basic premise behind the story, or at least this section of the story, who knows how the sequel will develop, and the quality of nasty realism in the writing. I suggest you go out and get a copy. That's it from me for now. Another Beardy book review will be along in a while. Until then, happy reading. Sean, fantastic. And like I say, I've seen all the press release and all the bump. I've got loads of emails about this book coming out, this kind of 
new book coming out and it's really nice to kind of for someone to tell us about it so i hope you appreciated that thank you sean please do some more so we hit mr terry edge now and continuing terry's series on how to be a famous and rich writer (laughs) tell us about it so terry over to you sir dear deirdre i went on a writer's retreat slept with one of the students Found out later she's my girlfriend's grandmother and now she tells me she's pregnant and wants me to marry her. Help! I've always found it curious that everyone who writes to the Sun's problem page has such great writer's instincts. They open their letters with a teaser, just like a movie trailer or the blurb on the back of the book. This gives you the bare plot of the situation but without the resolution. Which of course makes you want to get involved to find out how anyone could be so stupid, or so randy, as to sleep with a granny, and how Deirdre is going to make everything all right again. Or not. Then, the letter takes us back to the beginning of the story. My girlfriend and I have been arguing a lot, so I thought a week in the country with a group of quiet introverts would help me regain my spiritual equilibrium, etc., And here is the fundamental requirement of a plot. That something interesting, exciting, different or startling is going to happen to your character. Because, let's face it, Deirdre isn't going to publish a letter about how you went on a writer's retreat, met some lovely people, cooked a nice tofu casserole that received lots of compliments and you learned a bit about writing too. So today I'm going to talk about plot which is the main ingredient that separates a story you tell that complete strangers will pay to read from a story that your mates will pretend to be interested in down the pub after you've bought them a round or two. It's a vast subject, however, so this article will be in two parts, and I suspect we'll come back to this subject again and again in future. Here are two quotes about plot. Writers are always grappling with two problems. They must make the story interesting to themselves, if no one else, yet keep it believable. Because somehow, when it ceases to be believable on some level, it ceases to be interesting. In a very real way, one writes a story to find out what happens in it. And that was Samuel R. Delaney in his book about writing. On the other hand, John Franklin, in his book Writing for Story, says... Every writer of any merit at all during the last 500 years of English history outlined virtually everything he wrote. Leaving aside how he would know, you can see that there are different approaches to this subject. And it just goes to show how complex this is. So to begin, I'm going to keep it simple and look at the basic attitudes you need as a writer if you're going to produce great plots whether you outline them first before starting the story or write the story first to find out what the outline is. In the second part, we'll look at the mechanics and possible shapes of a plot and we'll stick with short stories for now. Because a short story goes for a single emotional effect, ideally felt at the climax, where it will have the most impact. A short story plot is about economy. One main character and one point of view, 
maybe two secondary characters, probably no more than three or four scenes. A short story is like a single punchy memory. Short beginning, accelerating middle section, dramatic end with short resolution. Because of this, short story writers need to be ruthless with their plots. They need to be like the wife whose husband comes home late, smelling of strong liquor, face covered in lipstick. What happened? she demands. Well, he says, it was a fine sunny morning, and I got the 8.35 to Liverpool Street as usual. I even got a seat, and what happened? she repeats. Of course, what she wants is for him to start this story as near to the end as he can get, which is good advice for a short story plot. That would be to do with him drinking too much at the office party and not realising the policewoman who come to arrest him was not really an officer of the law. We're all too polite when we hear other people tell us stories about their day. We nod encouragingly when they go on about the cyclist who nearly knocked them over on the way to work and their boss who gave them a really weird look and how hilarious it was when they hid the secretary's miniature teddy bear but it's okay, they put it back before she noticed. Or when your mate tells you about how he slept with his girlfriend's granny on a writer's retreat and got her pregnant you'll laugh like a drain for a bit then settle down to suggest ways he can keep his life on an even keel. But a writer would do the opposite. He'll look to ways he can not only prolong his mate's agony, but extend it. If he's a crime writer, he'll suggest wiring the granny's zimmer frame to the mains, then leaving the country before the police start their murder inquiries. If he's a literary fiction writer, he'll have his mate move in with the grandmother and then parallel his struggles to write a zeitgeist-defining novel with his spiritual torment at living with someone so close to death. And if he's a science fiction writer, well, his mate actually went through a dark matter conundrum 30 years into the future to sleep with his girlfriend as an older woman who then stepped back in time with him, so he now has to keep the two girlfriends apart or risk destroying the universe and his sexual credibility to the boot. So a writer has to go against her social, moral and physical instincts to live a life free of danger, pain and anguish. She has to find ways to make life for her characters worse, to push them to the very brink of destruction. And even then, she doesn't let them off the hook. Instead, she makes them think they've succeeded, has them actually close their fingers around the staff of power, which will restore their souls and destroy the marauding demons closing in on them by the second, only to find this one is a fake and powerless. All is lost. The darkness closes in. Then, out of the very depths of their despair, a possible solution is found. But it's risky. It will cost them dearly, even if it succeeds. When you're writing a story, you need to torture your characters. And you torture them with plot. You make bad things happen to them. Then see how they react. All sorts of surprising things happen to people when they have plots dropped on their heads. They get angry and react and change, and then affect the plot in return. Suddenly, you have a real story on your hands. But you need to be careful. When the plot controls the characters too much, the reader feels as if she's doing the Times crossword. Intellectually stimulating, but rather predictable. 
when the characters run amok without a plot to guide them, the reader feels as if she's reading someone's diary or blog and wonders why she's paid money for this story when she could be reading someone's blog or diary for free. Here's another quote. A plot, then, is a series of imaginary events designed to create anticipation at a high pitch, either in the form of anxiety, in a story of conflict or mystery, or of curiosity, in a puzzle story. If you can build such a series, you can plot. In a plotted story, the ending may take the form of a revelation, a decision, an explanation, or a solution. That was Damon Knight from his book, Creating Short Fiction. It's also worth checking out in the same book, his common plotting faults and what to do about them. This book is one of those essentials for any writer, by the way. Damon Knight was a great science fiction writer who also taught at the Clarion Workshop for many years. I know lots of writers from all sorts of fiction fields, not just science fiction, say that this is the one book they keep close at all times. It helps to see the plot as a causal chain rather than a series of events. Blake Snyder, in his book Save the Cat, says, The basis of the turn-turn-turn rule is the plot doesn't just move ahead, it spins and intensifies as it goes. It is the difference between velocity, a constant speed, and acceleration, an increasing speed. And the rule is, it's not enough for the plot to go forward. It must go forward faster, and with more complexity, to the climax. Now, I don't think it would be too controversial for me to state that the plots of the second and third films in the Pirates of the Caribbean series were rather light on causal effects. Why? Well, my theory is that they'd struck accidental character gold in the first film with Johnny Depp's Captain Jack Sparrow. In that film, he wasn't the main character, which meant the plot could progress without depending on him being affected by it too much. But by the time of the later films, the studio had decided he was the main selling point, so of course they did the subtle thing and built both films around him. However, because his character was clearly a brand... He was not to be tampered with. The solution? Was it to sacrifice him as the main character so the story could develop around someone else? Was it to change him anyway on the basis that he'd still probably be popular? No. Much simpler to just dispense with the plot. Hence there are lots of chases, fights, monsters, comedy characters, etc. But virtually no story development in the later two films. To round off this section, here are a few more ways of looking at plot. The main plot of any story is like the strings of a violin, carefully made to bear the weight of the bow and to transmit sound accurately. But a violin gets its timbre from the music box under the strings. Timbre, the resounding box in literature, is cultural illusion. That was Carol Bly from her book the passionate, accurate story. The plot is the alignment of progressively developed actions, conflict or instability, climax or crisis, resolution, showdown, action, with the theme or focus of a story 
It is the development of events and character. And that was from Nadayo Uku, from the book Story Building. And finally, characters caught in a crucible won't declare a truce and quit. They're in it till the end. The key to the crucible is that the motivation of the characters to continue opposing each other is greater than their motivation to run away. Or they can't run away because they're in a prison cell, a lifeboat, the army, or a family. And that was Sol Stein, sorry, Sol Stein from his book Stein on Writing. Another highly recommended book. Finally, I feel compelled to do some straight talking about getting into the science fiction fantasy short story market as a writer. In the latest edition of the Science Fiction Writers of America's Bulletin, Mike Resnick talks about how he puts together an anthology of short stories. He emails award-winning writer friends and says, Give me a story of X thousand words by Y date. And they do. And these stories make up two-thirds of the anthology. The purpose of these friends, he says, is to be trumpeted on the cover and produce the stories their fans know they can produce. So I can give a shot to some new writers whose names can't be used to sell the books. So what does this actually mean? Well, I think it means that you, the new writer, has to produce stories that are actually better than the established prose. Their selling point is their reputation. Yours is just the quality of your story. So if yours is only as good as the prose, guess who's going to get into the book or the magazine? Now, it's often said you need to read, read, read if you want to be a writer. Which is true. But what's not so often said is that you need to read and learn to write better than the people you're reading. For example, established writers can get away with some tell instead of show or point of view inconsistencies. And not because they mean to do it, just because the editor will make allowances for them. But if you make those sorts of mistakes, the editor will be only too delighted to have a reason to reject your story. Is this fair? It doesn't matter. It's just the way it is. Last time, I talked about the need to be enthusiastic. Actually, I think I talked about that the time before, but never mind. This is true, but you also need to be confident of your unique abilities. Alan Shearer, the legendary Newcastle footballer, was once interviewed after a game in which he'd played very well and had come to the notice of the wider football public for the first time. The interviewer said, Alan, are you the second Gary Lineker? Shearer said, no, I'm the first Alan Shearer. Thank you. And there you go. Thank you, Terry Edge. Fascinating look into plot. Do pop over next month for the conclusion of Terry Edge's article on plot. And do pop over to Terry Edge's set up a website, all for these articles. You can find it at terryedge.blogspot.com. Leave a comment there. Tell him what you think of what his articles are like. He'd love to hear from you. Again, that's terryedge.blogspot.com. 
So we come on to the main fiction of the night. Little heads up for Benjamin Rosenbaum is an American science fiction, fantasy and literary fiction writer, computer programmer, whose stories have been finalists for the Hugo Award, the Nebula Award, Theodore Sturgeon Award, the British Science Fiction Award and the World Fantasy Award. Born in New York but raised in Arlington, Virginia, he received degrees in computer science and religious studies from Brown University. He currently lives in Switzerland with his wife and two children. His past software development positions include designing software for the Natural Science Foundation. His first professionally published short story appeared in 2001. His work has been published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov Science Fiction, Harper's and Nature. His short stories have most recently been published together in a collection, The Anne King and Other Stories, published by Small Beer Press. Narration today comes by our good friend Lawrence Santuro. And if you remember, Lawrence wrote the story So Many Tiny Mouths, which was featured a couple of weeks ago, which was a cracking and powerful story. We have some more stories by Lawrence coming soon, so please check them out. He's also got a new book out just north of nowhere. I will put a link on so you can pop over to his site and check out his new book. Please do leave some comments. Lawrence would always like to hear from you. So, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents The Ant King, a California fairy tale by Benjamin Rosenbaum Sheila split open and the air was filled with gumballs, yellow gumballs. This was awful for Stan, just awful. He'd loved Sheila for a long time, fought for her heart, believed in their love until finally she had come around. They were about to kiss for the first time, and then this, yellow gumballs. Stan went to a group to try to accept that Sheila was gone. There was a group for people whose unrequited love had ended in some kind of surrealist moment. There's a group for everything in California. After several months of hard work on himself with the group, Stan was ready to open up a shop and sell the thousands of yellow gumballs. He did this because he believed in capitalism. He loved capitalism. He loved the dynamic surge, the crash of Amazon stock price. He loved the great concrete malls spreading across America like blood staining through a handkerchief. He loved how everything could be tracked and mirrored in numbers. And when he crossed the store each night, he could count the gumballs sold and would determine his gross revenue, his operating expenses, his operating margin. He would adjust his balance sheet and learn his debt-to-equity ratio. And after this exercise each night, Stan felt he understood himself and was at peace, and he could go home to his apartment and drink tea and sleep without shooting himself or thinking about Sheila. On the night before the IPO of Gumballs.com, Sheila came to Stan in a dream. She was standing in a kiddie pool. Stan and his brothers and sisters were running around splashing and screaming. She had managed to insert herself into a Super 8 home movie of Stan's family from the late 70s. She looked terribly sad. "'Sheila, where are you?' Stan said. "'Why did you leave me? Why did you become Gumballs?' "'The Ant King has me,' Sheila said. "'You 
must rescue me. Stan woke up. He shaved, he put on his Armani suit, drove his Lexus to his appointment with his venture capitalists and investment bankers, but the dream would not leave him. Ant King, he asked himself. What's this about a goddamn Ant King? On the highway near the swamp, he pulled his Lexus over to the shoulder. The American highway is a self-contained system, Stan thought. Its rest stops have video games, bathrooms, restaurants, and gas stations. There's no reason ever to leave the interstate highway system. It's deadness and perfection and freedom. When you do reach your exit, you always have a slight sense of loss, as when awakened from a dream. Stan took off his shiny black shoes, his argyle socks, cuffed his Armani suit pants above the knees, and waded through the squidgy mud and tall reeds of the swamp. He saw a heron rise, flutter and soar into the mid-morning sky. Ant King! Ant King! he thought. Miles underground, the Ant King was watching an old episode of Charlie's Angels on cable. Which one do you identify with, he asked Sheila. The blonde one or the pretty brunette one or the uh, perky smart brunette one? Stan may come rescue me, you know, Sheila said. I like how you never see Charlie and how Boswell, is that his name, Boswell? How he's kind of a foil and an audience for the girls. There's all this unrealized desire. Boswell desires the girls, but he's got no chance. And I think they desire Charlie, but Charlie's invisible. Sheila picked at a seam in the orange sofa. It is possible he might come rescue me. The Ant King blinked and tried to smile reassuringly. Sure, no, yeah, oh yeah, definitely. I think the two of you are just going through a phase, maybe. You know, it took him a while to deal with, uh, well, what he's going through. Sheila glared at him. You are so full of shit, she said. The Ant King threw his bag of Doritos at her. Fine! Well, I was just trying to be nice, he shouted. I'm full of shit. I am full of shit. What about your dorky boyfriend? He grabbed the remote and changed the channel, showing Stan, sitting in his Lexus, with the door open, toweling off his muddy feet. He's a lost cause, baby. You want me to respect a guy like that? I hate it here, said Sheila. The Ant King smoothed his antenna, took a deep breath. Okay. I'm sorry about throwing the Doritos. Maybe I overreacted, okay? Yeah, I hate you, too, said Sheila. Well, fine, said the Ant King savagely, snatching up the remote control, turning back to Charlie's Angels. Yeah, be that way. The gumballs are more than candy, isn't that right, Stan? said Monique, smiling broadly. Stan nodded. His feet were still wet inside his argyle socks. Yes, gumballs have a lot of... Uh, a lot greater significance than just candy. Monique paused and looked at Stan brightly, waiting for him to go on. Across the table, the three Credit Suisse First Boston underwriters, Emilio Toad, Harry Hornpecker, and Moby Pfister, sat stone-faced and unreacting in their gray double-breasted suits. Stan tried to remember the Gumballs.com business plan. They have uh, hard shells, he said. People... Um, they want challenge, the hardness, the gumminess, Monique broke in smoothly. Monique, all seven post-gender reassignment surgery feet of her. Monique, always dressed to the nines and tens. Monique was a valley legend for her instincts, her suavity, her rep. 
rapacious exemplary greed, Stan had sold Monique on the idea of gumballs.com, and she had invested. Found him the right contacts, the right team, and here they were, at the big day, the exit strategy. Stan, she cried joyously, fixing him with a penetrating stare. Don't be shy. Tell them about how gumballs are sex. Tell them about our top-gun semiotics professors. Tell them about gumballs as a cultural trope. You see, she said, swooping on to Hornpecker, Fister, and Toad, you can't think of this as a candy thing, a food and bev thing, a consumer cyclic thing. No way, Jose. Think Pokemon. Think worldwide wrestling. Think... Star Wars. Could we get back to the numbers? said Emilio Toad in a voice that sounded like a cat being liquefied in an industrial strength mixer. The gray faces of Harry Hornpecker and Moby Pfister watched in relief. Later, after the deals were signed and the faxes were faxed, Monique and Stan took a taxi to a cigarillo bar to celebrate. "'What like is up with you today?' said Monique, crouched somewhat uncomfortably in the taxicab, her knees almost touching her chin, but exuding her usual sense of style and unflappability. "'Um, just IPO jitters,' said Stan, hopefully. "'Got the crap,' said Monique. "'I had a dream about Sheila,' Stan blurted out. "'Ah, oh, goddess,' said Monique. "'Not this again.' "'It seemed surreal,' Stan said. "'She said—' I had to rescue her from the Ant King. "'Well, you're not my only weirdo CEO,' Monique said, giving him a manly sidearm hug. "'But I think you are the weirdest.' The next morning, nursing a cognac hangover and a throat raw from cigarillo smoke, Stan stood bewildered in front of a two-story building in downtown Palo Alto. It looked a lot like where he worked. There on the signboard were the other companies in this building, Lang Hong Trading, Trustee and Spark, Patent Attorneys, the Bagel Binge Marketing Department, Microchip Times Editorial, but no Gumballs.com, Inc. "'I thought you might be here, sir,' said Pringles, his secretary, appearing at his elbow. "'Huh? Oh, Pringles?' said Stan. The day before, Pringles had been dressed in a black T-shirt, reading, "'Your television is already dead.' and twelve earrings, but now she was in a smart ochre business suit, carried a mahogany-colored briefcase, and wore pearls. "'We've moved, sir,' she said, leading the way to the limousine. On the highway to Santa Clara, something occurred to Stan. "'Pringles,' he said. "'Yes, sir. You didn't used to call me, sir. You used to call me Stan.' "'Yes, sir, but we've gone public now. SEC regulations.' "'You're kidding,' said Stan. "'Pringles,' turned and stared out the window. The Gumballs.com building was thirty stories of mirrored glass windows with its own exit off Highway 101. A forty-foot cutout of the corporate animated character, Mr. Gumball, towered over Stan exuding yellow hysteria. Pringles escorted Stan to his office suite on the 30th after giving him a building pass. Wow, said Stan, looking at Pringles across his enormous glass desktop. "'Nice work, Pringles.' "'Thank you, sir.' "'So, uh, what's my schedule for today?' "'Nothing lined up, sir.' "'Nothing?' "'No, sir.' "'Oh, uh, could I look at the numbers?' "'I'll order them from accounting, sir.' "'Well, can't I just ask Bill?' "'Sir, 
Bill is the CFO of a public company now. He doesn't have time to look at the numbers. Oh, shouldn't I have a staff meeting with department heads or whatever? Vic is doing that, sir. Vic? Who's Vic? Vic is our executive vice president for operations, sir. He is? Yes, sir. Stan looked at his desk. There were gold pens, a golden tape dispenser, a framed picture of Sheila, and a glass jar full of yellow gumballs. They were the last of the Sheila gumballs. Pringles, Stan said. Yes, sir. I don't have a computer. That's right, sir. There was a pause. Anything else, sir? Um, yeah. Pringles, what do you suggest I do today? Pringles turned and walked across the expanse of marble floor to a teak closet with a brass doorknob. She opened it and returned with a leather golfing bag, which she leaned against the glass desk. Pringles, I don't golf, said Stan. You need to learn, sir, said Pringles, and left. Stan took a gumball from the glass jar and looked at it. He thought about biting into it, chewing it, blowing a bubble, or at least sucking on it. I really should try one of these sometime, he thought. He looked at Sheila's picture. He put the gumball in the pocket of the Armani suit jacket. Then he went to look for Vampire. Hi! said Stan, looking around the corner of a cubicle on the 17th floor. I'm Stan. Yeah, whatever, said the occupant of the cubicle, not looking away from her monitor. No, really, I'm Stan. I'm the CEO here. Yeah, I believe you. So, what do you want, a medal? Well, uh, Stan said, so, what are you up to? I'm storyboarding the Mr. Gumball Saturday morning cartoon pilot, and I'm past deadline. And I'm paid shit, Mr. CEO. Oh, okay, said Stan. I won't bug you then. Great, said the cartoon storyboardist. Hey, by the way, you don't know where the sysadmins and stuff are you, though, do you? Stan asked. I thought you weren't going to bug me then. After many such adventures, Stan found himself in the third sub-basement of the Gumballs.com building, close to despair. It was 8 p.m., and his building pass expired at nine. Suddenly, faintly from far off, Stan heard the sound of horrible, ghostly shrieking and rhythmic pounding. Thank God, Stan thought, heading toward the sound, and indeed, as he got closer, he could tell he was listening to one of Vampire's thrash-goth-trance-doom CDs. Stan feared that, like Pringles, Vampire might suddenly be wearing a suit, but as he emerged into Vampire's black-lit cavern, he saw that Vampire was wearing knee-length jet-black hair, a black trench coat, fingerless studded leather gloves, and giant surgical steel ear, nose, lip, and tongue piercings, as always. Perhaps he was surrounded by an even larger array of keyboards, monitors, and machines than yesterday, but it was hard to tell. Vampire! Stan shouted over the music. Am I glad to see you! Amen, said Vampire, lifting a hand in salutation, but not looking away from his monitor. So, uh, hey, what are you up to? said Stan. Looking for somewhere to sit down, he started to take a broken monitor off a folding metal chair. Don't 
touch that! Vampire shouted. Oops, oops, sorry, sorry, said Stan, backing off. No problem, said Vampire. So, uh, you were saying? Said Stan, hopefully. A lot of new machines coming in, said Vampire. So, uh, what do you know about NetBSD 2.5 routing across multiple DNS servers? Uh, uh, absolutely nothing, said Stan. Okay, said Vampire, nodded. Stan waited a little while, looking around. Finally, he spoke again. Uh, Vampire, ever heard of uh, the... This is going to sound silly, but the Ant King? Nope, said Vampire. I knew an Ant Agonist once on the Inferno BBS. Oh, said Stan. But um, how would you go about finding out about the Ant King? Uh, What search engines have you tried? asked Vampire. Well, none, said Stan. Well, try Google. They're good. Uh, okay, said Stan. Uh, vampire? Yeah. I don't have a computer anymore. Vampire turned and looked at Stan. You poor bastard, he said, and pointed. Use that one. The Ant King was sound asleep on the sofa. Cans of Dr. Pepper littered around him. Sheila got up gingerly, took off her sneakers, and held them in one hand as she crept for the door, clutching a Dorito in the other. It was a lucky moment. Sheila passed several of the Ant King's henchmen, who were all bald and stout and wore identical purple fedoras, asleep at their desks and threaded her way through the dark rooms of the Ant King's lair to the tunnels at the edge of it. She stopped at the mouth of the biggest tunnel. Far off she could hear running water. Something moved in the darkness beyond, a great hulking shape. Sheila moved cautiously forward. With a horrible, dry clicking and rustling, the gigantic black roach of death scuttled forward. With trembling hands, Sheila fed it the Dorito, as she had seen the Ant King do, and reached up to pat its enormous antenna. Then she slid past it into the passageway. She walked forward into the darkness. Ten steps. Twenty. Nervously, she chewed and blew a bubble. The bubble popped, echoing loudly in the tunnel. Sheila froze, but there was no movement from behind. Carefully, she spat the wad of gum into her hand and pressed it into the wall. Then she moved forward. Thirty steps. I can do this, she thought. Forty. Suddenly, Sheila was terribly hungry. I'll eat when I get out, she thought grimly, but that didn't seem quite right. She searched her pockets and found another Dorito. She lifted it to her lips and stopped. No, no, not that. Something was troubling her. She let the Dorito fall to the ground. I didn't prepare properly for this, she thought. This isn't the way to escape. You need a plan. You need resources. Anyway, there's no rush. She began creeping back down the tunnel. It's not so bad here anyway, she thought. I'm all right for now. I'll escape later. This was just a test run. She stroked the antenna of the black roach of death idly as she passed. Damn Stan, anyway, she thought as she crept back through the dark rooms. Am I supposed to do this all by myself? That guy... Big talker, but no action. 
On the TV, some CNN talking head was upset about market valuations. Ten billions for gumballs? This is a perfect example of market froth. I mean, there is no business model. There are no barriers to entry. Only in today's... Sheila switched to MTV and sank into the couch next to the Ant King. Hi, said the Ant King drowsily. Hi, said Sheila. Hey, I missed you, said the Ant King. Stick it in your ear, said Sheila. Listen, your ambivalence about me is really getting old, Sheila, said the Ant King. Ambivalence about you? Dream on, said Sheila. She took a yellow gumball from the dish on the coffee table, popped it in her mouth, and bit down. A crunch, a rush of sweetness, the feeling of her teeth sinking into the gumball's tough flesh. Sheila smiled and blew a bubble. It popped. She wasn't hungry any more. I hate your guts, she said. Yeah, whatever, said the Ant King, rolling over and pushing a pillow over his head. Grow up, Sheila. The search on Google.com had returned several band and music CDs, an episode of the King of the Hill cartoon, the Lair of the Ant King slide at the local water park, and several video games in which the Ant King was one of the villains to beat. Stan listened to the CDs in his car, watched the cartoon in a conference room with a video projector, and installed the video games on a receptionist's computer on the fifth floor and played them at night, hiding from the security guards. He popped down to visit Vampire a lot and avoided Pringles in his office entirely. "'I'm on level five, he said, and I just can't get past the roach.' "'And you still got the magic sword?' said Vampire, not looking up. "'No, I lost that to the troll.' "'You don't even have to go to the troll,' said Vampire, who never played video games, but read the video game newsgroups religiously. "'You can cross the Dread Bridge instead.' "'I always die on the Dread Bridge when it breaks in two. "'You're not running fast enough,' said Vampire. "'You've got to run as fast as you can and jump at the last moment.' "'It's tough,' said Stan. Vampire shrugged. Uh, "'How are things with you?' Stan asked. Oh. The patch for mod SSL 1.2.4.2 is totally like incompatible with the recommended build sequence for Apache on Solaris. Solaris is such crap. Oh, said Stan. Okay. Hey, I got you something, Vampire said. What, said Stan. That, said Vampire, pointing. On top of a rack of dusty computers, Stan saw a four-foot-long sword in a gilded leather sheath. Its ivory handle depicted a spiral of crawling ants. Stan pulled the sword a little out of its sheath, and an eerie blue light filled the room. "'Cool, huh?' said Vampire. "'Got it on eBay.' Holding his magic sword, Stan left the elevator on the thirtieth floor and cautiously approached his office. He hadn't been there in a week. He felt like he should check in. Pringles met him at the door. "'This isn't your office anymore, sir,' she said. "'It's not,' Stan said. He tried to hold the sword at an inconspicuous angle. Pringles ignored it. "'No, sir. We moved Vic in there.' "'Oh, really? Say, when do I get to meet Vic, anyway? I'm not sure, sir. He's quite busy these days with our acquisition of Suriname.' "'We're acquiring Suriname? Isn't that a country?' "'Yes, sir. Follow me, please.' "'Uh, Pringles,' said Stan, hurrying to catch up. "'Am I, uh, still CEO?' 
Pringles opened the door of his new office. It was a lot smaller. I'll check with HR, sir, she said, and left. That afternoon, as Stan sat at his new, smaller desk, Monique stopped by. Hey, hey, she said. So, here's where they got you, huh? Monique, what is going on? I haven't been, uh, usurped. It seemed like the wrong word. Oh, I wouldn't worry about it, Tiger, she said, sinking into a leather visitor's chair and crossing her legs. Gumballs is doing great. Vic's doing a good job. You should be proud. But, Monique, I don't do anything anymore. Oh, stop whining, Monique said. She rolled her eyes. God, you make such a big deal out of everything. Oh, cool sword. Thanks, said Stan glumly. Look, you're a startup stage guy, not an operation stage guy. Just enjoy the ride. I, I guess, said Stan. There you go. Hey, listen, you clearly need cheering up. I'm babysitting my sister's kid on the weekend. We're going to the water park. You want to come? Sure, said Stan. Why not? Monique came by Stan's apartment Saturday morning, and Stan came outside dressed in a blue Oxford and chinos and carrying a bathing suit and towel and his magic sword. Monique was wearing a silver blouse, a blue miniskirt, a silk scarf, and sunglasses. Her sister's kid had a shaved head, powdered white skin, black lipstick, and coal, and was wearing combat boots and a wedding dress adorned with black spiders. "'Stan, this is Corpse, my sister's kid,' Monique said. "'Hi,' said Stan. Corpse snarled like a wolf. "'Great. Everybody ready?' said Monique. In the car, Stan said, "'So, Corpse, what's your favorite subject in school?' "'Shop,' said Corpse. "'Aha,' said Stan. "'And what do you want to do when you grow up?' "'Bring about the violent overthrow of the current political order,' said Corpse. "'Really?' Uh, "'How come?' said Stan. Corpse's eyes rolled back into their sockets, exposing the white. "'Takes after me, don't you, Corpse?' said Monique happily. Corpse said nothing. "'But, Monique,' said Stan, "'you're a venture capitalist. You are the current political order.' <laughs> Monique laughed. "'Corpse,' said Stan, "'I hope you don't mind me asking this, but <laughs> are you a boy or a girl?' "'You teleological totalitarian!' Corpse shouted. "'Your kind will be the first up against the wall when the revolution comes.' "'Now, Corpse, be nice,' said Monique. But she was grinning. Stan stood in line for the water slide in his bathing suit, behind Corpse, who was still wearing the wedding dress. He had left his sword in the locker room. He felt naked somehow without it. Corpse sat in the mouth of the water slide tunnel, waiting for the go-light to turn green.' Stan looked over at the slide to his left. It was a boat ride. In a puffy, inflatable boat, four stout, bald men in business suits and purple fedoras sat waiting for the green light. Behind them was a Mexican family in bathing suits, waiting with their boat. (laughs) It's funny, Stan thought. He looked closer at the fedoraed men. In their boat was a glass jar filled with perhaps three hundred yellow gumballs. The lights turned green. Corpse vanished into the slide, and the men in the boat slid into their tunnel. Despite the sign reading, One at a time, wait for the green light, Stan jumped in after Corpse. 
Halfway through the twists, turns, and splashing chaos of the tunnel, Stan collided with Corpse. Hey! Corpse yelled, and was sucked away again. Stan was dumped out into a great basin. He went under and came up spluttering, chlorine stinging his nose. Standing unsteadily, he looked over at the end of the boat ride. There was no sign of the men with the fedoras. The water there flowed peacefully. "'Hey!' said Corpse, splashing on him. "'You're not supposed to go two at once!' "'I thought you wanted to overthrow the current political order,' said Stan, still watching the boat ride. "'All right, so let's start with the water part,' Corpse said. "'Why not?' said Stan. The Mexican family in their boat emerged from the boat ride. There was no question. The other boat had vanished while in the tunnel. Monique was standing next to the basin in her polka-dot bikini, yelling into her pink waterproof cell phone. "'No, you idiot! I don't want you profitable!' "'Because we can't find backers for a profitable company, that's why. "'Well, we'll find something to spend it on.' "'She clicked off the cell phone and shook her head. "'Some people are so stuck in the old economy.' "'Can I borrow that?' Stan asked. "'Okay,' Monique said, handing him the phone. "'Don't lose it.' "'Meet me at the boat ride in five minutes,' Stan said, "'and, dialing Vampire, hurried off to get his sword.' The light turned green, and the boat containing Monique, Corpse, and Stan, holding his magic sword, slid into the tunnel. "'Did you get in?' shouted Stan into the pink cell phone over the roar of rushing water. The boat surged through the great pipes, spun into a whirlpool, then rushed on. "'Yeah,' said Vampire over the cell phone. "'It wasn't easy, but I'm in. "'Actually, after I cracked a session key, it wasn't that bad. "'They've got a continuous telnet session going over a Pac Bell mother's so "'The boat lurched and heaved to the right, "'and a cascade of water flew over them. "'Stan shouted, "'So, did you, you know, open the secret door or whatever?' "'Oh, yeah, right,' said Vampire, "'and typed a command into the water park's main computer.' setting the Lair of the Ant King ride into real mode. The rubber boat rushed into a curve. In front of them, a section of wall swung away, and the boat flew out of the pipe into darkness and space, falling between black canyon walls. Uh, this ride is cool, said Corpse as they fell. When the boat hit the great subterranean river below, it bucked, and Monique and Corpse grabbed onto the handle set into its sides. Stan thought about whether to drop the pink cell phone or the magic sword, and while he thought about it, he flew out of the boat and disappeared into the icy rapids. Stan! Monique yelled. Bummer, said Corpse. The surging river slowed as it widened. They glided past massive black cliffs, and at last the rubber boat coasted up to a dock where several stout men in purple fedoras helped Monique and Corpse onto dry land. The Ant King bowed, and his antennae bobbed. "'Well, this is an unexpected pleasure,' he said. "'Cool lair,' said Corpse. "'Why, thank you,' said the Ant King. "'You both look soaked. We have robes and changing rooms right over there. Care for an espresso?' "'Sure,' said Monique. "'Got, like, hot chocolate?' said Corpse. "'Why, yes, we do,' said the Ant King.' "'Okay, there's a little yellow bird here,' Stan said. "'You still got the rod?' said Vampire over the pink cell phone. 
Stan looked down at the crook of his arm where he was uncomfortably carrying a rod, an axe, a loaf of bread, and a key. He was still in his bathing suit, dripping wet and exhausted from wandering the tunnels for hours. The blue glow of his magic sword dimly illuminated the room, including a small yellow bird which watched him suspiciously. "'Put the rod down,' said Vampire. Stan let it slide out and clatter to the ground. "'Now catch the bird,' Vampire said. With the pink cell phone wedged between his ear and his shoulder and his collection of found objects in the crook of his sword arm, Stan edged toward the bird. It looked at him dubiously and hopped away. "'I, I, I can't seem to get a hold of it,' Stan said. "'All right, forget the bird. It's only like, extra points anyway.' "'Extra points!' shouted Stan. "'I'm not trying to get extra points. I am trying to get Sheila!' "'Okay, okay, keep your hat on,' said Vampire. "'Get the rod again and go north.' While Stan wandered a maze of twisty little passages, leaving found objects and pieces of bread, according to Vampire's instructions, in order to differentiate the rooms from one another, and thus navigate the maze, and Corpse and Monique changed into fuzzy purple terrycloth bathrobes, and Sheila watched Comedy Central and felt inexplicably restless— the Ant King logged onto a network and sent a message, which appeared in the corner of Vampire's screen. "'Think you're pretty smart, huh?' it said. "'Okay,' said Stan. Uh, "'I'm in the room with the axe again.' "'Uh, hold on,' said Vampire. "'Message.' He did some tracking to find out where the message had come from, but no luck. He found a circular trail of impossible addresses. "'I know I'm pretty smart,' he typed back at it. "'Not as smart as you think,' the Ant King typed back at him. "'You think I would leave SendMail running on an open port on my real proxy server, "'as if I didn't know about the security hole in that baby?' "'Okay, I think I see the way out of here,' said Stan. "'This is the room with the two pieces of bread. "'Have I gone east from here?' "'Hold on a sec,' muttered Vampire." "'I don't think I have,' said Stan. "'Okay, I'm stumped,' typed Vampire. "'If that's not your real proxy server, what is it?' "'It's my Palm Pilot,' the Ant King typed back. "'With a few tweaks to the OS, "'and you're hogging a lot of memory on it, "'so I'd appreciate it if you logged off, Vampy.' "'Hey, hold on,' Vampire typed. "'Is this Ant Agonist?' "'Used to be.' "'Not any more,' typed the Ant King. "'Hey, I'm out,' Stan said. "'It's uh, opening up into a large cavern. "'Wow, this is great, Vampire.' "'No shit,' typed Vampire. "'How have you been, man?' "'I've been great, but I can't say the same for you,' typed the Ant King. "'You are rusty as hell. "'What are you doing selling gumballs for a living anyway?' "'Oh, shit,' said Stan. "'Oh, shit!' "'What?' said Vampire, curtly, typing furiously in the chat window. "'Vampire, it's the bridge. It's the dread bridge. I, I always die at the dread bridge.' "'I told you, man,' Vampire said absently as he chatted with the Ant King. "'You just gotta run fast enough.' 
Cell phone in one hand, sword in the other, Stan began to run. His bare feet slapped against the planks of the dread bridge. The bridge swung crazily over the chasm, and he fought for balance. As he neared the middle, he threw the sword ahead of him, and it clattered onto the ground beyond the bridge. He stuffed the cell phone into the waistband of his bathing suit and ran on. Suddenly, he heard a snap behind him, and he jumped. The bridge broke beneath his weight and swung away. Stan flew through the air, but not nearly far enough. He fell and barely managed to grab the planks of the bridge beneath him. He hung on as the ropes strained. He thought they were going to break, and he screamed in terror. But the ropes held. Stan swung over the dark canyon, clutching the planks. "'Hey, you, like, okay?' Vampire said." Yeah, Stan panted. Yeah, I uh, I think so. Great, Vampire said. Listen, I know this is like kind of a bad time, but there's something we need to talk about. Huh? Said Stan. What? Well, this is kind of awkward for me, but you know, I haven't really been feeling a little fulfilled professionally here lately. What? said Stan. So, well, I've decided to accept another offer of employment, basically. "'You're kidding,' said Stan. "'From whom?' "'Well, from the Ant King, actually. "'I'm pretty excited about it. "'It's a whole different level of responsibility. And "'The Ant King!' yelled Stan. "'The Ant King!' "'Yeah, actually, it turns out I know him from way back. "'But Vampire!' yelled Stan. "'Listen, aren't we in this together?' "'Hey, Stan,' Vampire said. "'Let's not make this hard on ourselves, okay? "'This is just the career move I think is right for me now. "'Vampire!' We can give you more responsibility. Stan could feel the cool air of the endless chasm blowing against his feet. More stock, whatever you want. Oh, that's great of you to offer, Stan, really, said Vampire. But, you know, it's getting really corporate here, and that's just not my scene. I think I'll be happier in a more entrepreneurial climate. But, Vampire! Stan shouted, and then the ropes above him groaned, and one snapped, and the plank he was holding on to twisted and spun. Stan was slammed against the wall, and the pink cell phone popped out of his waistband and fell into the darkness. He waited, but he never heard it reach the ground. Oh, crap, he thought, and began to climb the planks toward the ledge above. Yes, yeah, said the Ant King. Exactly. While E. Coyote is the only figure of any integrity in twentieth-century literature— Totally, said Corpse. Come on, said Monique. What about Bugs Bunny? It's an amateur, said the Ant King. A dilettante, no purity of intention. Pinky and the brain? Losers! Try to take over the world, indeed. Sheila cleared her throat. <clears throat> Does anyone want some more pretzels? she asked. Are you the one we're, like, here to rescue? Corpse asked. Sheila blanched. Yeah. She's the one, said Aunt King. So, listen, Star Trek or Star Wars? Oh, please, said Corpse. Babylon 5? Excellent choice, said the Ant King. I like Star Wars, particularly Darth Vader, said Monique. I'll just go for some more pretzels, then, Sheila said. But then he bails in the dark side in the end, the Ant King said. See? No integrity. Cold and angry, clutching his magic sword in both hands, Stan stood before the gigantic black roach of death. 
Come on, big boy, he yelled. Make my day. Meet my sword. Roach Motel, you're going to check in, but you're not going to check. With a lazy swipe of its great claws, the roach batted the magic sword out of Stan's hands. It flew away and clattered into the darkness. Then the roach grabbed Stan around the throat and lifted him high into the air. <coughs> Stan screamed in terror. He's a friend of mine, yelled Sheila, sprinting out of the darkness. Sheila, choked Stan. Here, come on, boy, put him down. Here's a Dorito, Sheila said. Reluctantly, the roach dropped Stan, ate a Dorito, allowed itself to be petted, and crawled back into the tunnels. Thanks, croaked Stan as Sheila helped him up. Hand in hand, Sheila and Stan made their way through the tunnels leading away from the Ant King's lair. Don't look back, Stan kept saying. Okay, don't look back. "'Okay, already,' Sheila said. Suddenly, Sheila stopped. "'What?' said Stan, careful not to look back at her. "'I'm, um, I'm hungry,' said Sheila. And "'Me too,' said Stan. "'Let's go.' "'But listen, we could just sneak back and grab a bite to eat, right? "'I mean, I ran out of here because I heard you were finally coming, "'but I would have packed a sandwich if I'd—' "'Sheila, are you nuts?' said Stan.' "'What's that supposed to mean?' said Sheila. Stan felt in his pockets. The left one was empty. The right one had something in it. A gumball. Dry. He pulled it out and squinted at it in the dimness. He remembered putting a gumball into the pocket of his suit jacket, but... "'Okay, so I'm going back,' Sheila said. "'Quick, chew this,' Stan said, handing the gumball back to her without looking back. She chewed the gumball and they walked onward through the tunnel. "'I never thought I'd say this,' said the Ant King, stirring his espresso nervously. "'Sheila will be angry, but, well, how can I put this?' "'Spit it out already,' Monique said. "'Yeah,' Corpse said. "'Corpse, I just... I feel like you really get me, you know?' "'Yeah,' Corpse said softly. "'I, like, feel the same way.' Monique whistled. "'Would you... <clears throat> the Ant King blushed. Would you, would you like to stay underground with me forever and help me rule the subterranean depths? Wow, yeah, that would be, like, totally awesome, Corpse said. Oh, God, your mother's going to kill me, Monique said. Oh, come on, Aunt Monique, don't turn into a hypocrite on me. You always told me to follow my heart. You always said it's better to get into trouble than to be bored. I didn't say you can't do it, said Monique. I just said your mother's going to kill me. So, does that mean I can? asked Corpse. How about if we do this on a trial basis at first, Monique said. Okay? And you, she pointed a menacing finger at the Ant King, no addictive gumball crap, okay? His antennae stiffened in surprise. Yeah, Aunt Monique knows more than you think. You watch your step, buddy. She turned to Corpse. "'You have one month,' she said. "'I'll talk to your mom. Then you come back up, and we'll talk it over.' "'Oh, like, gosh, thank you, Aunt Monique.' "'You have my word,' said the Ant King. "'Corpse will enjoy life here thoroughly, and it'll be very educational.' "'I bet,' said Monique. "'Hey, can we violently overthrow the current political order?' Corpse asked. Sure, said the Ant King. That sounds like fun. Epilogue 
Stan sat across the desk from Lucy, the HR person, who smiled at him brightly. So, what are your skills? she asked. Uh, I founded this company, he said. We try to be forward-looking here, she said. Less progressive organizations are focused on past accomplishments, but our philosophy is to focus on current skills. What languages can you program in? Uh, none, said Stan. I can use Microsoft Word, though. Mm-hmm, Lucy said. Anything else? I'm pretty good at financial analysis, Stan said. We are actually overstaffed in accounting, Lucy said. I could work in marketing, Stan said. Lucy smiled indulgently. Everyone thinks they know how to do marketing. What about customer service? I think I'll pass, said Stan. Okay, Lucy said brightly. Well, I'll let you know as soon as something else opens up. Gumballs.com cares about you as an employee. We want you to know that. And we want you to enjoy your indefinite unpaid leave. Can you do that for me, Stan? I'll try, said Stan. And he left. Stan finally met Vic at the company Christmas party in San Francisco. As he expected, Vic was tall, blonde, and athletic, with a tennis smile. Stan, Vic said brightly, good to finally meet you, and this, this must be Sheila. Hi, said Sheila, shaking hands. Hi, Vic, said Stan. Listen, I great dress, Vic said to Sheila. Thanks, Sheila said. So, what's running the show like? Stan said, I wanted to... It's uh, actually quieted down a bunch, Vic said. I'm starting to actually have time for a little golf and some skiing. <laughs> Stan said, I was wondering if we could... Wow, said Sheila. Where do you ski? Tahoe, said Vic. Of course, <laughs> laughed Sheila. Stan said, Look, maybe if we could take a few minutes. So, is your wife here? Sheila asked. Vic laughed. No, I'm afraid I'm single. Wow, are you gay? Sheila asked. About 80-20 straight, Vic said. Hey, me too, Sheila said, Stan said. It's about my job here, at, but really, I, I just haven't found anyone I've clicked with since moving to the Bay Area, Vic said. I know what you mean, Sheila said. Stan said, because I have some ideas about how I could... So, where were you... Before the Bay Area, Sheila asked. Later, Sheila came up to Stan at the punch bowl. Stan, you know, things haven't been going so great for us lately. Uh-huh, Stan said. I want you to know I really appreciate your rescuing me. Hey, no problem, Stan said. But since then, it just seems like we aren't going anywhere, you know? Sheila, I love you, said Stan. I give my life for you. I've never found anything in my life that means anything to me except you. I know, Stan, she said. I know. And maybe I'm being a bitch, but, you know, that's kind of hard to live up to, you know? And I'm just not there yet. She put her arms around him. He stiffened and let go and sighed. I just think... Are you going to run off with Vic? Stan said. 
"'Just give it to me straight,' Sheila sighed. "'Yeah,' she said. "'Yeah, I guess I am. I'm sorry.' "'Me too,' Stan said. "'Stan left the party and walked to the Bay Bridge. "'He looked down into the black water. "'He thought about jumping, but he didn't really feel like dying. "'He just didn't feel like being him anymore.' He decided to become a bum and walked to South of Market, where he traded his suit, shoes, and wallet for an army jacket, a woolen cap, torn jeans, sneakers, and a shopping cart, three plastic sacks, and a bottle of night train in a paper bag. But he wasn't a good bum. He was too polite to panhandle. He didn't like the taste of night train, and at campfires, he felt alienated from the other bums. He didn't know any of the songs they liked, and they didn't want to talk about Internet stocks. He was hungry, cold, lonely, tired, and sober when Monique found him. "'You look like shit,' she said. "'Oh, go away, Monique. I'm a bum now.' "'Oh, yeah?' said Monique. "'And how's that working out?' Well, "'Lousy,' Stan admitted. Monique got out of her BMW and squatted down next to where Stan lay. The other bums moved away, rolling their eyes, shaking their heads in disgust. "'I've lost everything I love,' Stan said. "'Aren't you the guy who loved the dramatic surge and crash of Amazon stock tickers?' the concrete malls spreading across America like blood staining a handkerchief. How everything can be tracked and mirrored in numbers. Numbers, the lifeblood of capitalism. Well, yeah, Stan said. Get in the car, Monique said. You're hired. Stan got in the car. <laughs> And there you go. An excellent story. Benjamin, thank you very much for allowing the Starship Sofa to produce that. Do pop over to Ben's site. And please pop over to Larry's site. Check out his work. Larry, a fantastic narration. Thank you so much. So that ends Oral Delights, number 42. I hope everyone has enjoyed it. I hope it's made up for that little short gap last week when too much rain stopped me recording, would you believe? So it's nearly time for me to wrap up there. Do please, if you want to support the Starship Sofa, the best way to do it is sign up to the monthly donations. You get the free sanatorium show there as well, where I delve into everything in my life. If the monthly things is not your bag of fish, then, you know, by all means, just a one-off donation would be fantastic and that would really help. Don't forget, we've got the sofa shop out there. If you want any of the back episodes of the original show, please pop into there and have a look there. And, God help us, my audiobook is in there as well. So, no excuses. Support the show. It so helps to keep this old bird flying high in the sky and in space. If you want to drop an email for anything, anything I've mentioned in the show, articles... You name it, it is starshipsofa at gmail.com. So until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Well, I'm here.
Terrans survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Storching Sofa. A evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.